Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Jason Crawford. Jason runs the blog, rootsofprogress.org, and is one of the leading luminaries in the emerging discipline of progress studies. Jason's work at Roots of Progress centers around investigating the crucial technological innovations that have allowed us to come out of the depravity that has characterized most of human existence up until very recently. We cover Jason's views on why the study of human progress is a moral imperative, the prospects of long-term technological and economic stagnation, relatedly, whether all the low-hanging fruit in that regard has been picked, the stalling of important industries from pesticides to nuclear power that seems to have strangely started somewhere around the 1950s, and the relationship between the notion of progress, free will, and agency. Admittedly, I didn't get quite as in-depth as I would have liked to have with Jason in this conversation here. We focus mostly on his current work in the blog and the directions that he's planning on going in with Roots of Progress. I was hoping to have a little bit more of an in-depth conversation about the human institutions and the technological innovations in terms of governance, human rights, and other aspects of political and economic organization, free markets, etc., that I, I don't think are coincidental in terms of their presence in the places and at the specific times where we see this massive increase in human well-being. Regardless, I think this is a very important conversation to have. I was very happy to have Jason take time to come on the show, and I would love to direct anyone who's interested in finding more about his work over to his blog at rootsofprogress.org. So without further ado, I give you Jason Crawford. Today I'm speaking with Jason Crawford, who's running the blog rootsofprogress.org, where he is sort of outlining the frameworks for what makes civilizations progress. Jason, welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Now, when I was reading your blog, something that instantly struck me, you've got a lot of interesting topics here looking into the, the roots of progress, and it may not be obvious to uh, people who haven't seen your blog what exactly that entails, but you've got posts on really the, the, the building blocks of what makes civilization possible, things like vaccines, concrete, gunpowder, steel, etc. As someone uh, myself who grew up, I don't know, are you familiar with the game Sid Meier's Civilization? I haven't played it. I've heard of it. Okay, well, in, in Civilization, as you probably may know, uh, you sort of start off in the ancient world, and then you, you start off with a few settlers, and then your job is to sort of build out new cities, have those cities learn new technologies, develop agriculture, develop military units, so on and so forth, and then eventually you you end up in the, the modern age. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about your blog, just perusing through the posts, was that it, it, it looks to me like uh, like a trip through sort of the civilizational uh, technology tree. You know, you start off with something basic like like the wheel and then writing, and you move into aspects of agriculture and higher levels of, of culture and so forth. Um, but I did want to just ask you a question. I know you come from an engineering background. Uh, what was your motivation initially to start the blog? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I do come from an engineering background, specifically software engineering and, and computer science. That's my training, and that was where I had my career for the uh, last 18 years or so. The blog began as a – well, it really began just as a reading list, and then it became a hobby, and uh, then it evolved into an obsession. And from there, it became my full-time pursuit. Um, so the, the reading list started off uh, really with me wanting to – and I think very appropriately for this podcast, mm -hmm. wanting to uh, re-examine the foundations of my worldview and um, sort of my, you know, pol political, uh, you know, views and and sort of overall philosophy. Um, I had, you know, over over many years of thinking about these questions and talking to people with a broad variety of uh, of political ideas and worldviews, I hit a point where I realized that when people disagree on politics, they don't 
necessary. You know, they don't usually disagree on um, you know which solutions to pick to a common problem. They actually disagree on which problems matter for society um, oh, and what are the what are the biggest issues today. So. This, just think about people, you know, personalities you've encountered and people you've talked to. Imagine uh, someone on the left who's very concerned about environmentalism or environmental issues. And, you know, they might say, for instance, that global warming and climate change are the most important issue of the day. This is what everything should be focused on. Mm -hmm. uh, this is our top issue that's going to kill us. And then, you know, someone on the on the economic right might come along and say, actually, that climate change stuff is completely overblown. But you know what issue everybody's ignoring? It's it's the national debt. Uh, you know, we're at $24 trillion or whatever it is now in national debt. That's the ticking time bomb. You all are ignoring this. And then at this moment, imagine, you know, a, a social justice uh, advocate comes on the scene and they say, no, 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 you guys are both wrong. It's racial inequality and uh, and systemic racism, institutional racism. This is the, the real issue of our day. This is going to tear the fabric of our society apart if we don't. You get the picture. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, in order to, I think, and, and these these problems that people think about that completely shape your worldview, um, you know, you're going to be you're going to be very interested in issues and institutions and and solutions uh, and, and so forth that address the you know the, the the thing that you think is actually the biggest problem, and you're going to just basically discount or uh, you know give little weight to things that address problems that you don't even that you don't think are important or that you don't even believe are, are real problems, right? Yeah. And so, you, oh, sorry, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, so I asked myself, okay, what, what are some of the issues that I care about and why? And I, and I, and I thought as deep as I could, and I realized a lot of it goes to this fundamental of having this keen awareness of and appreciation for the story of human progress. Mm -hmm. uh, I know how far we've come. I know how crappy it was to live just a few hundred years ago, how much our quality of life and standard of living has improved, how immensely it's improved since then by, by orders of magnitude. And that is extremely important to me. I think it's extremely important to the world. And I think it's underappreciated. And I would say actually people's worldviews are shaped not only by the problems they believe exist, but also the problems they believe are underappreciated and under-resourced you know, by, the, by the rest of the world. So mm -hmm. if you, you know, maybe... Uh, so, you know, you, you might, for instance, agree that, uh, that climate change is a problem, but think, well, but there's actually tons of people working on climate change. And actually, you know, the more important problem is this thing that nobody's talking about, even if it's not more important in an absolute sense, maybe it's more important in a rel relative sense for you to focus on and advocate for because it's getting neglected. And so, um, I think the story of human progress is underappreciated. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem of, of progress and, and that as an issue in itself is uh, is something that we don't pay enough attention to and, and, and wait enough in our thinking. I think this this progress that we enjoy today, this uh, the standard of living, the quality of life, it's not only has it has it come enormously far in just the last few hundred years, but in the thousands and even tens of thousands of years before that, it actually changed very little. So if you look at, if you measure human progress by any of a number of, of different metrics, you see this very strong hockey stick pattern. Yeah, I was going to ask you about you, the hockey stick graph. Yeah, absolutely. Whether that's, um, uh, you know, whether you measure it in terms of world GDP or in terms of human life expectancies or population or production of any commodity pretty much that you care to name and so forth, you see this pattern where uh, the levels of, of production and wealth and uh science and technology and so forth, everything stayed very low for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, in the last couple hundred years, different, you know, the knee and the curves, different places for different curves, but sometime you recently shot up and have just, uh, and are now on an extremely strong ascending curve. So what that says to me is human progress is real. It's important. And but it is also not automatic. It's not inevitable. It's not a thing that just kind of naturally happens uh, to people, no matter where and when they are, it's actually a thing that I believe came about in part because uh, we started actually believing in progress. We actually started believing that progress was possible and desirable, and because we found the the mechanisms to uh, to actually bring it about. Yeah. So. I think we need to those those mechanisms. We need to understand that idea of progress. We need to understand those mechanisms. We need to understand how was it that we finally unlocked 
the you know the you know finally found the keys to progress uh, just a couple hundred years ago after so many thousands or tens of thousands of years of of relative stagnation before that, and and if we care about human life and and uh, happiness and thriving and flourishing, we should really need to ask how why did it take so long, and what is necessary to keep it going? Uh, if it's not automatic or inevitable, then it could slow down, it could stop, it could even reverse. How do we how do we prevent that from happening? How do we actually uh, keep progress going and even accelerate it? And well, to me, that's what that's what kind of the the worldview that that informs progress studies and certainly that that informs my blog and my project. Yeah, that's an that's an excellent place to start. One thing I did want to uh, talk to you a little bit about here is uh, this term progress studies that uh, you've attached to the work that you're doing. I believe uh, it was inspired by a blog, uh, not a blog post, a post in the Atlantic. Uh, that was produced by uh, Tyler Cohen and Patrick Collison. Is he? He's a uh, Stripe, correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. So okay. uh, Tyler Cowan's a, an economist at George Mason at the uh, Mercatus Center. Patrick Collison is a co-founder and the CEO of Stripe, which is a Silicon Valley tech company. Yes, and, and you're right. So they co-authored this article in the Atlantic last mm-hmm. summer, titled "It." It ran under the headline "We Need a New Science of Progress." And that is the article where they coined, I believe, coined the term progress studies and and called for, uh, you know, more attention to be paid to the progress studies that were going on already and called for more progress studies to be done. Yeah. And so uh, obviously we know that progress is possible when you look at, you know, all of those hockey stick graphs, uh, like like you said, it, you can argue uh, where and when the knee, the knee in the graph exactly is. But we know for a fact that sometime around, but basically between the years 1700 and 1900, you had just exponential uh, improvement in overall human well-being, quality of life, production and industry, all of these things. And it seems to be tied to a, a small, a small, relatively small uh, geographic geographic area. Um, and it's also very, very strange, I think, that it's uh, it's actually not not linear at all. We tend to think of progress as, as sort of a linear phenomenon, that it's sort of a, a day-by-day thing, and we're always sort of grinding away at it. But really, uh, for most of human history, like you said, there was uh, basically nothing. People were, by and large, uh, living in absolute squalor, even if the most fortunate of us. And for whatever reason, all these uh, weird factors seem to come together, and you get this uh, very emergent phenomenon that we, we sort of summarize as progress. What would you define as progress? Yeah. So I think progress is to be judged by a, you know, ultimately a humanistic standard. So the standard of human life, life, health, happiness, um, our capacities, our capabilities. Uh, So progress means uh, from an economic sense, it means more technology, more wealth, more infrastructure, and therefore productive capacity. It also, in my view, means uh, more science, more knowledge, more Mm -hmm. understanding of the world. And uh, I would include, you know, political and sort of moral and social progress in this as well. So more peace, more freedom, more rights universalized to to everybody uh, so that everybody has equal rights. Those sorts of things are, uh, you know, are are all the key things that I include under progress. I think of it as uh, scientific, technological and, you know, social. Great. And uh, now, obviously... Your blog, to me, it looks it's sort of an outline. And I say an outline because at first I wanted to use the term encyclopedia, but it's not quite an encyclopedia because the posts are are purposefully, I wouldn't say shallow, but they're purposefully not in depth. You're trying to get out one idea very sort of succinctly in each post. And it looks to me like you're sort of outlining the fundamental substrate of what I would call civilization in a way. Is that what you would describe what you're or is that how you would describe what you're doing? Yeah, so what I'm doing right now is I am reviewing this basic question of uh, so I, I, within the 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 uh, subcategory of tech, technological and industrial progress, in particular, is what I'm focusing on right now. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at what were the major developments? How did we get here to you know to where we are today? How did we get the basic elements of industrial civilization in place? And that's things like m- uh, manufacturing resource extraction, like mining and, and drilling, uh, energy technologies, um, engines, power plants, sanitation, yes, medicine, medical technology, agriculture, 
on food preservation technology, um, transportation technologies and transportation infrastructure, um, information and communication technologies, uh, all, all of these different things. So I've covered things like uh, cement and steel. I've covered uh, textile production. I've covered uh, recently, I've been, last couple months, I've been focusing on medicine and specifically infectious disease. So I did, for instance, a whole history of uh, smallpox and how we uh, eradicated smallpox. It's the only, the one and only disease that has been uh, eradicated from the face of the earth. I think we're close uh, to polio. Exist. Uh, we are close to polio. Yep, that that one will likely be next. And uh, and both of those, by the way, smallpox and polio are the two greatest triumphs of vaccines. And so I went uh, through in the smallpox post. I went through the origins of, of vaccination. Some things I'm planning to cover in the near future include uh, bridge building uh, and uh, agriculture and related technologies. Mm-hmm. So yeah, these are um, these are the sorts of things that I do. I'm, I'm going very bottom up right now, very sort of historical and empirical. I just want to tell the basic stories of these technologies that we depend, we absolutely depend on for our modern way of life. Where do they come from? How do they work? What problem do they solve? Uh, what problems did people face before this technology existed? What motivated them to even look for it? And then what was the essence of the solution? Uh, mm-hmm. And I really try to go in depth, even for a you know for for an audience of non uh, experts. Uh, I'm looking to give people at least some sense of kind of what was the solution, how did it work, which is something that I find is missing from a lot of histories. Uh, you know, even even history of of industry and technology, they often gloss over the technical details, and so I try to get really into depth on that explain the solution in a, in a way that you can actually understand and appreciate it as an inventive uh, achievement. Yeah. So one of the things I really like about your blog is uh, even though we are a political theory podcast, your your specific posts are uh, extremely apolitical and they tend to be focused uh, more on things rather than people specifically, which I think in general, when you're getting a hist- hist- historical uh, perspective on the development of these technologies or these innovations, you often get a lot of information about the people or companies or groups that might have been involved and and less so much about what the actual technology was, how influential it was, what kind of impact it had on our lives. Yeah, and I do. I, I think people are important. Uh, so I do try to call out who were the key inventors and discoverers. But I want uh, you know, a lot of histories focus uh, focus on the human drama of the situations. Yeah, they focus on you know not this person invented a thing, but this person fought with this other person, and then they faced down this other person, and then there was a battle over such and such, and here was the controversy, and uh, you know, and the then this person parts. quit. <laughs> the parts that maybe I, I I think there's a conventional view out there among writer the the writers of these histories and probably even more so their editors and publishers that this kind of human drama is like what the the average person or what a broad audience can get interested in and and get emotionally excited over and one of my uh, one of my premises with this blog and with my project is that that's not the only thing people can get excited about and that if you tell the if you tell the actual uh, story of the invention itself the, again the problem and the solution uh, even even going into some of the technical details somewhat, I think that can be told in a way that's actually very engaging and compelling to a broad audience. And that's a large part of what I'm trying to do. Fantastic. And now in the realm of, I guess, technology or innovation in the most, in the broadest sense, from the political theory perspective, we would consider certain institutions or ways of organizing society like constitutional government, uh, representative democracy, obviously human rights, as you've talked about before, as sort of fundamental as well to this notion of progress. Are are you planning on getting into uh, some of those areas in in future posts of the blog? At some point, yes. My goal is to try again to go very bottom up and I think that, uh, and, and, and stay very historical. And so I think that, uh, you know, the, the more you get into, uh, sort of politics and economic theory, the more you are now in a realm of, you're in a realm of theory, you're in a realm where, um, people have hypotheses. There's a lot of controversy. 
And of course, people's ideological sort of biases come into play. And I have that as well. You know, I came into this entire thing with uh, a very much a kind of laissez-faire free market uh, bias, very much a, uh, very much in favor of um, capitalism and inventors and, and so forth. Uh, and that's certainly part of what motivated the project. But uh, my goal in this is to try to take a, a very hard, uh, very uh, sound, epistemologically sound look at Okay, if we're going to, you know, if, if we're going to say that the that this uh, cause of human progress is the thing that's actually most important, and this is a significant part of what justifies uh, capitalism and uh, the and the sort of heroic focus on inventors and and uh, great business industrialists and so forth, let's 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 actually be able to tell that story from you know bottom up and be able to tell the the specific advances and uh, you know the specific stories. And if we're going to, you know, tackle an issue like, you know, in the 20th century, for example, a lot of technological development, uh, the government was actually involved in. And a mm -hmm. lot of it was, you know, there was a lot of uh, military investment, for example, through uh, ARPA, for example, yeah. through the, yep, sure, the, the federal government built the highway system. Uh, the military was the first customer for a lot of, uh, in, you know, for, for integrated circuits and a lot of other computing technology and so forth. So, you know, I'd like to be able to... Um, tease apart all these different influences and kind of untangle uh, this this complicated story and be able to say, OK, look, here's actually how uh, progress came about. Here's how, you know, different things contributed to it. But to get to that, I think you really need to know the the basic stories. Again, what what was the progress that was made? What were the major innovations? How were they made? Uh, you know, what, what are the histories of each of these things? And I think knowing those stories keeps you very grounded in a in an area that when you get into politics and economics can get, um, you know, extremely ideological. So that's my approach. Yeah. And Jason, I think one of the uh, really important points that I'd like to circle back to that you made at the beginning of this conversation was that progress is not necessarily at all the default. One example just from uh, one of your posts on concrete is that uh, DARPA right now, I believe has a bounty out for uh, someone to figure out the uh, the the um, technology of Roman cement, which we still don't understand uh, how they made such a strong material back then. And so things do get lost to time. And uh, in general, um, <clears throat> the entropy is 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 the rule, not the exception. And so I, I think uh, one of the really important things about what you're doing is just pointing out that, hey, if we don't actually pay attention to these things, if we don't uh, remember what we've actually discovered, they, they can get lost to time. Uh, yeah, that's true. Now, I think that is um, not nearly as much of a risk today as it was for some of these ancient technologies, because today, of course, we have orders of magnitude more uh, records. I mean, we write mm -hmm. everything down. Yeah. Uh, everything gets recorded and now uh, digital copies are made of everything and sort of, uh, you know, hopefully replicated all over the world. So we're much, much better at uh, writing things down and remembering them now than, you know, people were 2000 years ago. Um, so I certainly, uh, you know, I'm I'm less worried about, uh, say, you know, knowledge getting accidentally lost. What I'm more worried about is a society uh, perhaps forgetting what it was or, or losing sight of what it was that got us here in the first place yeah. and slowly eroding or undoing the values and the institutions and the structures and the processes that led to progress in the first place. So, yeah, one of our one of our the main concerns of this po podcast is uh, the degree to which it, it seems as if certain technological innovations or perhaps it's culture, but I would say it's most likely driven by technology, uh, s seem to be getting to a point where they are starting to undermine a little bit of our fundamental uh, substrates. Do you think the primary problem is sort of just distraction? Distraction? Say more. What do you mean? What kind of distraction? What, I, what you were talking about, your, your fear that we sort of lose focus on sort of the important things or the real reasons that uh, for, for how we were able to get here. And it, and it seems I like, see. you know, with sort of the obsession with entertainment, the obsession with monetizing attention and so forth, the risk to me isn't, isn't so much that this knowledge or this information isn't available. It's just that nobody could end up looking at it. That's possible. So, I mean, I've, I've heard a, uh, a hypothesis recently, someone 
someone and I'm forgetting the name of the book right now uh, or the the author, but someone had a hypothesis that essentially, as a society grows richer, its preference uh, for investing more in development actually shrinks. Right. So the so the the richer you are in an absolute sense, kind of the a little bit maybe the more comfortable and complacent you get. Mm-hmm. And then you're just not going to work as hard, <laughs> maybe not going to save and invest as much. And so the overall sort of rate of growth slows down. Um, you can interpret this in multiple ways. You could interpret this as actually this is this reflects people's actual preferences and um, therefore it's for the best. And this is just kind of a reality of of human beings that we have to uh, adjust to. So, you know, really nothing to worry about here. Just get used to a lower growth rate. Um, another way to interpret this would be to say that the more we do get comfortable and uh, and complacent, the more we should do to explicitly kind of shake ourselves out of that complacency, mm-hmm. remember where we came from, think about where we're going. Um, I mean, so here's a way that I frame the, the, the problem and frame, you know, kind of history that I, most people don't think about and, and haven't talked. I've never heard anybody else talk about it, and, and most people seem to be a little um, surprised by this when I mention it. If you think about where society, where society was, and where where our technology and industry was, um, our wealth and our standard of living, say 200 years ago, roughly in in about the year 1800 or so, you know, we the 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 people who lived in that era were, by our standards of of real wealth, they were crushingly poor, desperately poor. They lacked so many basic things that today we just consider basic necessities of life, like, you know, electricity and hot running water and, uh, you know, simple commodities like microwave ovens and supply chains. uh, Yeah. Supply chains and, you know, milk that has not been contaminated with bacteria and so forth. So, right. It was all these things that they lacked. Now, uh, if you were teleported or you know transported back in time to the year 1800 and suddenly had to live in that standard of living, knowing what you know today about what kind of a standard of living is possible and being used to the world of 2020, you would do whatever you could to get out of there and, and get back, <laughs> yeah. get back home, right? You would be – you, back to you the would future. claw, you would fight. You would – yeah, you would fight your way um, to get back to 2020 and our modern standard of living. Well, now – you know that much you can see through that thought experiment but now flip it around and think about 200 years in the future and think about the year we'll just round off 2200 and think if progress continues at anything like the pace it's been the last couple hundred years mm-hmm. how amazingly well off uh and fantabulously rich by modern standards the average person in the year 2200 will be and flipping that around again to look at us today we are desperately crushingly poor compared to those people in 2200. And so if we would fight, if we would fight in 1800 to get back to today, by the same token, we ought to be fighting and, you know, fighting for that future. Today, we ought to be fighting to get into the future of 2200, you know, just as hard as, you know, we would fight to get out of the past of 1800. And and this is Um, uh, related to your premise of progress studies as, uh, as almost a, a, a moral, you call it a moral imperative. Yes, exactly. And so I think with the proper historical framing, I think we could motivate more people to care about progress. I think we could, uh, you know, motivate more people to invest in it. I think we could motivate more young people to um, go into fields that might become the frontier. Uh, And I think these are the ways maybe that we keep the growth rate high, um, you know, even in the face of potentially creeping complacency. Great. And uh, I, I definitely agree with your extrapolations there. I think short of uh, some sort of uh, catastrophic world-altering event, uh, the progress is is likely to continue apace. Uh, are you familiar at all with the effective altruism movement? And they, they have a very big concern with, I know, existential risk. Um, it seems to me like they're taking more of a utilitarian uh, view on this as if they're, they're trying to maximize some kind of uh, utility function. It looks to me like like your priorities uh, are a, a little bit more dispersed than uh, than something like oh we should just identify the top three biggest problems and then only care about those. Certainly, yes. Yeah. So uh, the effective altruist movement is I, I am familiar with it, 
and I see it as kind of adjacent to the progress movement. I think that what they share in common is a big picture and long-term focus, wanting to, you know, caring about kind of the well-being of humanity um, and wanting to maximize that over the long term. Uh, I think uh, where I see a little bit of a difference in emphasis, at least, is that, um, as you mentioned, yes, the a lot of the effective altruist community today seems to be quite focused on existential risk. Mm-hmm. And the progress community, I would say, uh, is a little more focused on mm, things that might seem a little more prosaic, you know, more just like, how do we just keep up the 3% uh, GDP growth for the next 100 years, yeah. right? And how do we not let it slip to 2%, right? Because mm-hmm. the difference between 2% and 3% you know, growth compounded over 100 years is actually enormous. Now, I think that risk is important, uh, both existential and non-existential risk, <laughs> and is, is something that we should pay attention to in any and all of our technologies. Uh, at one point, I would actually like to go into kind of the history of risk. Um, so like what are specific risks and dangers that we have faced, mm-hmm. uh, natural and artificial, right? Both both natural risks, but also things that – risks that have and, – and problems that have come about from our own technology. And how did we deal with those things? And I think there are some good, uh, I think there are some good examples, some 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 good lessons to be learned from the way that we dealt with, you know, problems created by our own technology. Uh, there's certainly a pattern that anytime we come up with a new technology, there there is risk from that new technology because there's always risk in the unknown, right? Mm-hmm. And so any new technology can turn out to have, especially if it's based on new physics, new phenomena of nature. Uh, can turn out to have some sort of, you know, unintended consequences that were bad. Yeah. And there's been many times in our history when we've discovered these things, you know, x-rays, for example, right? We discover x-rays, we discover that they can actually uh, be tremendously useful as medical imaging. And then not long after that, we discover they can also be incredibly harmful to the human body and cause disease and death. Mm -hmm. Now, how did we deal with that? Well, we dealt with that not by uh, banning x-ray technology or deciding never to use it again, right? We dealt with that by uh, studying the risk, understanding the physics and the biology and the, the pathology you know, behind it, and then ultimately finding ways to, uh, you know, to minimize exposure, right? So yeah. now we don't do unnecessary x-rays, right? When we do x-rays, we put shielding in front, right? We figured out how to block harmful rays with, uh, you know, with lead aprons or whatever. And, and so, you know, we just kind of do the minimum medically necessary and, and, and keep people under a certain exposure threshold. Uh, you know, that's a common pattern for many different types of technologies. We find out there's something, uh, there's something good, then we find out there's something harmful about it, then we figure out ways to measure and mitigate or limit exposure or maybe even, you know, modify the technology to make it less harmful or we find an alternate uh, substitute technology that is, uh, you know, that has, uh, you know, some or all the same benefits but but doesn't have the harms. There are many, there are many stories like this um, in the history of technology. Now, this doesn't address some of the kind of uh, black swan events, right, the big catastrophic things that you can't foresee until it's too late. I think it's important to think about those two and mitigate them. You know, my only word of caution would just be that I think it's very easy to go very far out on an epistemological limb uh, speculating well beyond what it's possible for us to actually predict in any way. Mm. And at a certain point, you're, you, you know, you've, you've speculated beyond all signal and you're just kind of into the noise. And so I would caution people, you know, not to do that. But, but short of that, I definitely think that we should be paying attention to risks and looking for uh, new technologies and, and just ultimately more, more human progress in order to combat those risks. Yeah. Are you familiar with, uh, with Eric Weinstein over at Teal Capital? I mean, a little bit. I've listened to, you know, some of his stuff. I follow him on Twitter. I listen to his conversation with Peter Thiel on the portal and so forth. Okay, great. Yeah. So he's got this hypothesis or not really a hypothesis, but it's more like an assertion that uh, real GDP growth has actually been slowing down or stagnating since about the the mid 70s. And that there's just sort of something systemically going going wrong in, in the pipes. Now, that's a, a very interesting hypothesis when I reflect on your sort of goal here in, in progress studies 
Do you think that perhaps we're at a point where, uh, just given the ex- exponential growth that we've seen over the last few centuries, that maybe all of the low-hanging fruit has been picked and we might be reaching some sort of uh, asymptote or uh, point where it's sort of dropping off? Um, possible, but I mean, in, in a certain way, I think yes. I don't think that fully explains it or is the main explanation um, to my mind. Uh, yes, it's true that the more we go on, the more low-hanging fruit kind of you know has been picked and, and the harder things get. But also, the further we go, the more resources we have mm-hmm. to keep you know climbing the tree and, and picking the higher fruit. So I don't think that explains it because this, I mean that phenomenon has been has already been going on for a while. I think there's a couple of ways that I look at this. So one thing is to kind of look at overlapping S curves. An exponentially growing, uh, you know, thing like GDP over the last, you know, couple hundred years, when you zoom way out, it looks like just kind of a, a smooth upward curve, perhaps, um, with maybe a couple of bumps. But when you when you look at the constituent, you know, the components of that, each one is a, is a, is not a, a an exponential curve. It's an it's an S curve that starts off uh, and then has a really steep climb and then hits a kind of maturity point where it, where it levels off and plateaus. And every individual technology follows this. The, um, the biggest and most fundamental technologies that affect the entire, you know, transform the entire economy um, have these very long, like 50 to 70 year, I think it's been said, uh, waves that they go and that, that, that this S-curve plays out. And the way we get a... Um, the way we get a, uh, a continuous, you know, growth year after year, continuing to grow, is that we have multiple overlapping S curves. Mm-hmm. Now, one argument you can make about where we are in stagnation right now, or if, if things are slowing down, is that we kind of ran out of S curves in the um, maybe in the late 1800s and early 1900s. We had like several different things going on at once. We had oil, we had electricity, we had the internal combustion engine, we had mass manufacturing, we had the invention of plastics, Mm. we had in the middle of the 20th century antibiotics. Uh, You know, there were just all these different things, um, all these, these, these multiple frontiers. And then kind of by the end of the 20th century, you know, the only thing maybe that, that, that arguably that seemed to be on that really steep uh, growth curve was was a single major area, which is, you know, computing and information technology. Yeah. And now, uh, 20 years into the century, that is sort of understandably maybe starting to plateau a bit. And what have we replaced it with? And if you look back to, uh, you know, what, what should have been the other S-curves that were going on? Uh, there's a number of things that were, you know, promising in the 1950s or 60s or so and were sort of cut off. Like so nuclear power? So nuclear power is a great example, right? And, uh, and all the following are things I haven't looked into deeply yet. They're more just, uh, you know, interesting areas for me to explore in the future. Nuclear power, right? What happened? Why didn't we get, um, you know, nuclear taking over more and more of our energy development? That has enormous, you know, potential and promise. What about supersonic air travel, right? So that was a thing where we sort of had the Concorde and then the Concorde was grounded and we actually took a step back, right? We regressed. And it's only really today that I, you know, about 50 years later that we have like another, uh, you know, uh, sort of credible like supersonic passenger jet uh, Mm -hmm. in development. Um, Similar thing with space travel, right? So we had a, we had this boom of the space program in the 1960s and then things kind of fell off. Eventually we, you know, we retired some of our biggest capacity, uh, you know, we didn't we didn't have and maybe I'm not sure. I think maybe we even still don't today have the capacity to put um, human astronauts on the moon again. Yeah, I hear we don't know uh, how to maybe, do it. <laughs> maybe we maybe we have that now with uh, with Elon Musk stuff. Right. So now we're having kind of a renaissance, a revival of space with with private space technology. Um, but again, that's that was like a 50 year gap. What about you know, one thing I wonder about is. What about insecticides? So we had in the 1940s, we had DDT. Uh, it was extremely effective against a lot of insects, including especially mosquitoes, you know, almost conquered malaria with it, then decided for environmental reasons to, uh, you know, not to use it anymore. I believe it was banned globally. Yeah, it was and killing then, baby birds. Yeah. So, okay. So whether or not you agree with that decision, why don't we have anything, you know, to really replace it? Like, it seems to me that we don't have anything that's nearly as effective. Mm-hmm. Um, not that we don't, you know, we do have insecticides that are being used today, but we are, we're still fighting malaria and it's still a major killer out there. So, you know, those are just a couple of examples of kind of like things I would look at as, 
you know, maybe the missing S curves, maybe, right? Things that we should have had, and and why don't we have them? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. With regard to insecticides, I I mean, I know this is sort of, to me, perhaps indicative of one of the low hanging fruits that might have been picked. Like I'm sure that Monsanto and Dupont and Dow Chemical and others uh, are trying to find better insecticides uh, that are both safe and environmentally friendly. But I'm not sure. You know, I mean, they've got chemical engineers and so decades, forth. it's been decades, yeah. right? It's been, mm-hmm. it's been many decades. We have uh, immensely advanced science and technology now. We understand genetics way better than we did, uh, right? I mean, we didn't even know the double helix back then. We've got computers that can sequence, uh, you know, DNA. We've got uh, supercomputers that can uh, simulate uh, molecules and their interactions, uh, it, we, you know, plus we've just had decades of time to kind of look and like find something else. You know, why didn't why we? You know, why don't we have if even if, we, if it wasn't going to be D to T, why don't we have a replacement, right? Why don't we have something else that um, that works just as well and maybe even doesn't have the, the the problems that gave people pause and concern about it before? I don't know. This is a thing. This is a thing I want to look into, but it's a thing that I think you know. If you want to start to understand, well, do are we under stagnation and where did it come from? I think, again, I think this is the bottom-up sort of inductive, like historical, uh, empirical approach to figuring this out is kind of look at, well, what, what progress should we have had? <laughs> what are we missing, right? Can we even can we even start to guess at that and, and find some obvious holes? And then, you know, what happened in those areas? Yeah, and of course, there are optimists, I know, you're who are speaking out uh, against this sort of notion that, oh, everything's slowing down, you know, progress isn't happening. I know you're a fan of uh, Steven Pinker's work. You know, in Enlightenment Now, he's basically just got a whole book full of uh, charts and facts and figures trying to prove to everybody that, hey, you know, the pro- progress is happening. But one of the things that I fear with Pinker's hypothesis is that most of the progress that seems to be happening especially over the last 30 years, has been largely happening in the developed world, or, or I'm sorry, in the under undeveloped world. You know, initiatives like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, obviously some amount of international aid and others, but mostly just getting things that have already been perfected or implemented in the developed world out to developing nations. I, I think that's constituted a lot of the progress that he's talking about. Would you disagree with that? Uh, so it's, it's true. There's been a lot of, uh, catch up progress, right? There's been a lot of, uh, so Peter Thiel calls it zero to one versus one to N, right? Or it's, I think it's been called intensive versus extensive. There's pushing the frontier forward with new innovations and Mm -hmm. then there's kind of distributing, right? Better and wider distribution of, uh, innovations that have already been established. Both of those in my view are important forms of progress uh, it's true. Yep. When you look at world GDP and how much it's grown, sure, a lot of that is, say, China and India uh, uh, catching up over the last couple of decades, which, again, is good. But yes, it, it leads to this question, well, what's going to happen when everybody's caught up? And if the frontier has stopped moving forward, the whole world's going to hit a wall. Now, let me clarify something. So you, you mentioned this issue of optimism. To my mind, the question of optimism and the question of uh, stagnation are, are orthogonal questions, right? So y- you can be a, com- a, a strong optimist and still believe that currently we are starting to undergo a stagnation or the progress is slowing down. The optimistic view is that we can, that we are, you know, that we have the, the tools to detect this, <laughs> that mm-hmm. we are, that we have detected it, that we can analyze it, that we can figure it out and that we can fix it and we can get things going again. Right. The pessimistic view would be perhaps that this is natural or inevitable or maybe um, uh, the maybe a cynical view that, you know, humanity isn't good enough to or or, or wise or, or virtuous enough to kind of figure it out and fix it. Uh, you know, I don't have a strong opinion on the, the question of the, the factual question of stagnation. I've seen some good evidence that it's happening. I want to dig into it more. But regardless, I remain an optimist fundamentally from my view of, of the world and human nature that even if we are hitting a stagnation, that we can figure that out, we can analyze it, and we can, you know, get things going again or, or possibly even faster. Uh, so I want to ask you a really interesting, uh, this is going to be more of a historical question. Uh, obviously, a lot of what this progress has to do with, or at least what we're, the, the common narrative about what this progress has to do with is the, you know, the emergence and the, uh, I guess, successes of the Enlightenment, which whether whether or not it's, I guess, 
politically palatable. The Enlightenment actually, you know, did happen in a, a relatively small geographic area compared to the rest of the world. Do you think that there's something special about Europe and, and, and the places where a lot of the Enlightenment emerged in terms of maybe the uh, focus on individualism as, as compared with, uh, I, I know, the contrast that's often given is, is something like China, where they tend to be a lot more collectivist and generally more pessimistic. What, what's your sort of take on that? Yeah, I think uh, so. I do generally uh, I am generally sympathetic to the view. Uh, I do generally agree with the view that the fundamental ideas of what we call, you know, uh, uh, what uh, Steven Pinker and David Deutsch, the way that they characterize the Enlightenment, right, which is a sort of a particular set of ideas that emerged around that time, uh, including, you know, fundamental, uh, a really fundamental idea of, of reason and its application to every area of human life. Mm -hmm. I do think that that was fundamental to and very important for um, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution. Um, I think it was the fundamental philosophic context for those things. And that certainly was something special and unique that, uh, that did occur in Europe around that time. Exactly why it occurred there and then, uh, I don't know. I don't have the full answer for one interesting book I might refer you to is uh, by Joel Mockier called A Culture of Growth. It's actually kind of the first book that I read in this entire uh, journey of mine for, for the Roots of Progress blog. And it, and it influenced the way that I've, uh, you know, the, the scope. I, initially, I thought I might just kind of look into the Industrial Revolution as a, a historical phenomenon and time period. And after reading Machir, I, I just I, I was already somewhat inclined to, but I, I decided definitely to broaden my scope to the entire story of human progress, uh, including you know scientific, social, and cultural progress. But, uh, you know, Machir talks about this, how this, the very idea of progress, the idea that progress is possible and desirable, is actually new and, and unusual and is unique in human history. Uh, that most places and times have had kind of the opposite view. They've had more of a cyclic view of history. Mm -hmm. They've had uh, more of a view that he calls ancestor worship, which is yeah. the idea that we actually, our ancient ancestors were the greatest people who ever lived, and all knowledge that matters was revealed to them in ancient times. And really, we can never surpass them. All we can do is kind of learn as much as possible uh, from their texts, which we can kind of you know go into deeper and deeper levels of exegesis on. And uh, he details how that uh, that idea changed in Europe between roughly Columbus and Newton, um, so about the 1500s and 1600s. And he goes through you know a lot of that. He gives uh, a good amount of credit to Francis Bacon mm -hmm. um, and to Newton himself. And so it's a fascinating story. I, you know, I, I recommend diving into it. Yeah. Um, so there there is this uh, difference here then between these sort of older, more traditional cultures, which seem to be almost fatalistic in terms of their their understanding or conception of um, of, of time, time, really, and progress uh, as a result of that. Do you think that this uh, notion of free will specifically, now I, I know there are arguments whether or not it's it's real, whether or not it's sort of a, a figment of our, our psyche, or, or, I, we don't really need to get into that right now, but do you think that free will itself as a sort of construct is important to this notion? I'm not familiar with the history of the idea of free will and how that relates to these other ideas and developments, but I would say that a, a notion of agency is extremely important. So, you know, it's, in fact, it's almost not enough to, to merely believe in free will. You need to also believe, and maybe it's even more important to believe, that, that your actions can actually achieve your goals and affect the future. So I think what's you know what's even more damaging to uh, to a view of progress is a a kind of fatalism. One of the things you know, as, especially as I was looking into the uh, the history of smallpox, which I mentioned, yeah, uh, one of the books that I read about the, the the early history of the disease and Western attempts to to fight it, the title of the book is Defying Providence, and uh, and that title is is specifically chosen and very apt because. A lot of what really had to be fought was the idea that uh, disease is something natural, disease is in God's hands, mm. God chooses who to strike with disease, maybe he does it for a reason, and it's actually quite arrogant of humans to think that uh, we can choose to intervene, that we can choose who's going to get a disease and when, that we can choose to prevent a disease, right? This was seen as, you know, just a, a form of 
you know, what today we would call playing God. Um, but it was seen in, by, by many as defying God's will, defying uh, divine providence, uh, and sort of going against the natural order of things. Uh, and I think this is true of not just uh, disease. I think this is true of many, you know, a, um, a drought, a flood, a crop failure, all these sorts of things that might uh, affect ancient peoples and, you know, cause mass devastation. A lot of them were just seen as natural and or, you know, or even seen as kind of the, the will of the gods that it would be um, hubris and folly to go against. And so I think uh, uh, a key part of the the set of ideas behind human progress, a key part of that is this idea that we have a, we as human beings have agency, that we can make choices and those choices are going to affect the future, that we can take destiny into our own hands, take the future into our own hands, and actually do something about it. And so it's that feeling of uh, sort of efficacy and agency, both on an individual level and on a societal level. Uh, that I think is is really crucial for it, it's foundational for it's a prerequisite for the idea of progress. Fantastic. And uh, so, Jason, you are uh, now you're doing this full time, correct? With a I believe a grant from um, Emergent Ventures. Is that is that right? Uh, that's right. I've received a grant from Emergent Ventures and a couple of others that actually haven't been announced yet, uh, and those are funding me to do uh, the Roots of Progress blog. Okay, great. And obviously, that's uh, that's why you're uh, on this tour. That's why you're coming on this podcast right now. I know you're trying to get on more shows just to continue getting the message out there. But what would you say is sort of your main main goal or area of focus for the, the growth of Roots of Progress at the moment? Um, yeah, so I'm, I, you know, I'm doing two things. One, of course, I'm just continuing with my survey of the key technologies that make up the modern world and that, that form the foundation of industrial civilization. There's still a number of things I really haven't uh, tackled at all yet. And so in 2020, I'm going to be going covering a number of different areas and writing, you know, several more long form pieces of the type that I've already done on mm -hmm. the blog. I definitely hope to cover agriculture. I want to cover uh, nuclear power, more about transportation, including you know the automobile and the airplane. Uh, I have done some research on on locomotives and railroads as well. I haven't written anything about that yet. I'd like to do something on information technologies, including you know early electronics like telephone and telegraph, all the way through the computers and the internet. So there's a lot of topics to cover. And wow. then in terms of in terms of uh, you know getting the word out. Uh, I am uh, obviously, you know, working to grow the audience on the blog, and more generally, just working to kind of spread awareness of this uh, nascent progress movement that has cropped up ever since that article in the Atlantic last summer. And uh, you know, kind of, I want to, I want to spread the word that this uh, this pro human progress thing is real. It's important. It matters. We should think about it. We should study it. We should be paying attention to it. And I want to find everybody who's interested in this topic and kind of, uh, you know, bring them together into a community to uh, be talking about this and to collectively learn as much as we can about it. Well, that sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Jason, for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show. You can find Jason's blog as well as his writing on the Roots of Progress over at rootsofprogress.org. You can connect with him as well on Twitter at Jason Crawford or at Roots of Progress for the site itself. Uh, any last words for our listeners before we head out? No, you've got it. Thank you so much for having me on here, and best of luck with this new podcast. Thank you. Bye now. Have a good one.